Maybe we should. Hello. Hello. Um, hello and welcome to the IMA. My name is Johan Lund and I'm a co-director of the space together with Alien Burns. Um, I want to begin by saying in the spirit of reconciliation and respect, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather today, in this case, the terrible people. Um, and I also want to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and um, show my respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here tonight. I'm delighted to um, present the always incredibly well-dressed uh, Elizabeth Ann McGregor from the Museum of Contemporary Art, um, Australia and Sydney. Um, we, we were just kind of discussing that Liz Ann is actually the third Scottish person in this series of only now five lectures. It's quite amazing. Well, we were debating though if Charles Ash is really Scottish or not. Yeah. <laughs> It's complete accident, but it you know um, tells you something about the the Scottish that have um, conquered um, many parts of the world. Um, so this is a series of talks, and um, Elizabeth uh, Anne's is the fifth one in this series called "What Can Art Institutions Do?" And it's basically a very simple frame, um, a question that we've asked a number of people, um, mostly directors and curators, curators so far, but also. I think um, moving forward also to artists. And it's, it's not so much what should we do, but what can we do? And very open-ended, and people have um, found many different ways of addressing this question. Um, on the 11th, 12th of July, there will be kind of a two-day gathering, which will bring together people in a more intense way to discuss these questions. Um, but then the series continues on, on the, until the end of the year. Um, so from Dundee, Scotland, uh, um, Lizanne has been in um, Australia since 1999, and before that working across um, Scotland and England, um, and I think most notably maybe at uh, the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, which is a um, very important space in the UK. Um, so to joining uh, MCA in 1999, a very different MCA at that point, uh, and for the past 16 years, um, really developing into one of the most significant um, museums and also just venues for contemporary art in the country, and also worked very hard to, to expand and to um, make the kind of the incredible addition to MCA that opened in 2012 happen. Um, so really, without further ado, I'm just going to give it over to... to um, Lisanne to speak about MCA and also about some of your thoughts about kind of maybe what, how that, how the institution in some ways and your work kind of, you know, address the question of what art institutions can do. Thank you. And I too would like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land tonight. Um, Brisbane holds a very special place in my heart because some of you will know I had the great good fortune to meet the wonderful Gordon Bennett many years ago and organized a major retrospective of his exhibition in Birmingham and had many wonderful visits to Brisbane to, um, to work with Gordon. So I'm, I'm really it's wonderful to see Leanne here tonight. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the artist whose work I'm standing in. This is a work by Celine Condorelli, I understand. So thank you, Celine, for letting me stand here. Um, I'm going to show you lots of images. Um, 
because I'm a very visual person rather than a, a verb, less than a verbal one. So we're going to start. My partner always jokes when I, when I say I'm giving a lecture somewhere. He says, um, oh, God, you're not doing my days as a bus driver again, are you? Um, because I did begin my days as a bus driver. Um, the reason I'm introducing it with the bus is because it taught me so much that has informed my entire career. Um, because when a large green and red bus drives into a village or a town or, or wherever, and you open the doors and people come in, it's a very, very different atmosphere from what you usually have in a gallery. And it did look like a gallery. It was pretty cute inside. Um, but for a curator, and I was really very young when I got this job, um, to be able to do an exhibition and then have to stand there and hear what the public had to say about it was an incredibly good learning experience. And I, I really loved my, my days as a bus driver. I did it for three years. We built a new bus, this is it. Um, and I took it all around Scotland. And I think it was really, what it, what it taught me most of all was that um, contemporary art is not the problem. The audience is not the problem. The curators are the problem. We are the people that put the barriers up that prevent a public engaging with contemporary art. And I've believed that right through my career. And I think uh, I'll show you some of the things we've done to address it. So in 1999, I, I had the great good fortune to, to come to this magnificent site with this wonderful building. There were a few problems, headlines like this and this. And my favorite that I can't find, but I've got, I've got it somewhere in my archive. It was uh, the, the Daily Telegraph thundered um, money for wankers when we were given a grant. <laughs> I thought, oh God, what have I done? Anyway, how could I address this? The museum was actually technically bankrupt and there were a lot of issues. We'd lost the audience, numbers were down below 100,000 a year. Artists were protesting about us because we'd cut jobs and you know, there was all these things. Some of you will be familiar with the wonderful John Caldor. At the time he had a fabric business, so the artists had these placards outside, cut fabrics, not jobs, Caldor. Um, and so there was a, it was in real turmoil, and we had to really um, do a lot of things to change it, and, and I used a lot of my bus driving experience to do that. Um, we introduced different kinds of programming. This is, um, actually, that's the wrong caption, ignore that. Um, this is an exhibition called Full Moon um, by Michael Light, which was um, amazing images of the moon landings. And when I suggested that we did this, there was a sort of, that's not art, and I said, but it's been at San Francisco MoMA and it's been at the Hayward Gallery. Why can't it be regarded as art? And I think people thought at this point, oh my God, she's just going to do all this populist stuff and it'll be a complete disaster. Well, we did the Michael Light Show, but we also did Michaela Dwyer. So all the people that came to the museum for the first time to see Michael Light also saw Michaela Dwyer. And that, that idea of bringing people in for one reason then, and then allowing them to see something else is something I, I'm really um, very committed to. Um, in the 2000 Biennale was an incredibly important moment because that was the moment in which I finally managed to, to do something that I told the board we had to do when I arrived, and that was to make it free. We had this pay model. It was a disaster. Nobody wanted to pay because the negativity was too strong. And let's face it, most people don't know what contemporary art is. They have no idea. They have an idea that it might be about, you know, sharks in formaldehyde or, it, you know, it might be some guy walking around with a plank on his head or, you know, there's all these kind of misconceptions about contemporary art that the media have, you know, traditionally have really hammered. Um, and so to actually try and re-engage with an audience, I told the board we had to be free. Um, they laughed because we were bankrupt. So the idea of going free when you haven't got any money was a little counterintuitive. 
However, by, by the middle of 2000, we had managed to secure a sponsorship from Telstra, and we went free for the Sydney Biennale, which likewise had had a hammering from all kinds of quarters. And we brought this, it was rather an extraordinary Biennale, it was kind of a greatest hits of the, of the, of the 20th century. Gerhard Richter, Gordon Bennett, a number of fantastic Australians as well as international artists. And there was a wonderful moment when I walked through the galleries, and I have to say I had many sleepless nights, because people said to me, it won't work. This is Sydney. In Sydney, people go to the beach, they don't go to art galleries. In Sydney, people do not engage with the history of ideas. They're far too superficial. Compare it with Melbourne. In Melbourne, people will be at dinner parties, sitting around the table, discussing ideas. In Sydney, they're out on the balcony, looking at the view, discussing real estate. I thought, oh dear. Anyway, they were wrong. As soon as we went free, the museum was packed. And I walked through, and it was just so wonderful. And I've, this is a very important moment when we'd, we'd done a project in Western Sydney, in Blacktown, in fact, and we brought the mayor and the, uh, the whole of the town council into to the museum for the Biennale. And the mayor was walking around, and he stopped in front of the Richter. And I said, can I, can I say, you know, would you like to know more about the artist? And he said, no. He said, it's fantastic. He said, I came here today out of curiosity. I didn't expect to like anything because I didn't think I liked contemporary art, but I really like this. And I thought, there you have the problem. This man has, very intelligent man, has this incredible preconception about what contemporary art is, and here he is really enjoying it. So how do we break down, how do we break down that? Well, we introduced a child guides program. It's wonderful to hear about works of art um, through the eyes of a young person. This program continues to this day. Um, we engaged a lot of artist educators, that's one in the middle there, again training one of the child guides talking about the work of Rosalie Gascoigne. And the mission really was to try and get people to understand, not to be scared of it, that they could come in, make up their own mind, but to give them the information that we as curators hang on to. Because let's face it, when we go to a studio, we get all this incredible information. You know, we talk to the artist, we know what they're thinking about, and then we stick the work on the walls and we go, here it is. And we don't tell the audience. Now, I'm not suggesting we should cover the place in, you know, in, in great reams of information, but finding ways to impart that information. And then the other thing is to impart the idea that other people's opinions matter. There is no one opinion. So that's the point of the child guides. If a child can tell you what their opinion is, what they think of the work, obviously having been informed and given some information can be incredibly powerful. We started working in Western Sydney, as I've mentioned. This is Craig Walsh's project. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And we really pu pushed our education programs, which were, I have to say were already fantastic. The museum was doing amazing education work. Um, so much so that I was really thrilled, in fact, quite astonished at this headline, um, only 18 months after the other dreadful ones. So it shows you that you can actually um, change perceptions actually quite dramatically, and, and we were really happy with this. And what this then led to, of course, was us being able to negotiate a new funding deal and move on and really do what the museum was about. So what do I think um, museums of contemporary art are about? Well, first and foremost, they're actually about artists. Uh, and so what we decided to do after we got our funding stream in place was to really focus on being a museum for artists. We ran, we ran a whole series of programs. We obviously have artists talking a lot. We ran an artist training program. 
we always have artists as educators. So young people coming to the museum, their encounter is with an artist, not a teacher. And that gives our programs something very different from, for example, the state institutions. Um, lots of artist talks, clearly, all of them at this stage taking place in the galleries. And of course, a young audience. This young audience that really loves to engage with contemporary art. We set up a program called Generation Next for 14 to 18 year olds, pretty tough crew to, to target. Um, I told the donor who gave us the money to set this up that I expected to get 100 to 120 kids. Um, we had 800 about a month ago. So it's grown, it's been going for 10 years now, but it's a really hugely popular program. Um, lots of public programs, lots of different, uh, different groups. And then the thing I alluded to earlier, Western Sydney. Western Sydney in Sydney is code for working class. It's where people live who don't go to art galleries. That's what they tell you in Sydney in the CBD. And when I realized that we had this extraordinary problem of perception of the museum, what I wanted to do, having thought about my bus driver days and a number of things I'd done in Birmingham, was actually to go out to the places where you would not expect art lovers to live, ha ha. So we formed a number of partnerships and I'd like to acknowledge John McQueenie here tonight because he and I worked very hard to set up this wonderful project in Penrith and we uh, had the great good fortune to meet a very wonderful man who was the marketing manager of the rugby league club, the Penrith Panthers. Now who would expect an art institution to partner with a rugby league club in the far west of Sydney? When I asked Max why he, it was interesting to him, he said something very interesting. He said, well, you're trying to change the image of the MCA and talk more widely about why people of all backgrounds can and should have the opportunity to engage with art. He said, and I run a rugby league club that has very different, but not, you know, but in, in the same way, has a very different kind of, a very difficult image with the wider public, the public that you engage with. So I'd like the MCA audience to think better of rugby league, and you want people living in Western Sydney to be more positive about the idea of, of, of the MCA, and ultimately, of course, that's a very political agenda. So we did this project with the Panthers. In fact, we did several projects out there. This is Craig Walsh, another Brisbane artist, of course. Um, who did this wonderful project um, with, the, with the club about the players. Um, funny story about the power of art. We installed, these were images that were taken at the end of the match. And those of you, and if anybody knows anything about rugby league, but it's a really tough game. And when these guys finish, they're, you know, they, it's really tough. So for them to allow Craig to take their image, picture immediately at the end of the game was quite something. And we actually installed the images in the new clubhouse. And I went out there about a year later and they'd gone. I'd been up there for about two years, and I said, what happened to the images? It turned out this was one of their worst seasons. They lost almost every game. And the players asked for the images to be taken down from the clubhouse because it was bad karma. <laughs> I thought, who said people can't respond to art? You know, they're actually concerned that these images will bring them bad luck. So unfortunately, the images, well, they're now actually in Penrith Regional Gallery, which is great. Um, Ash Keating, another project we did, which was all about um, drawing attention to ideas of waste and ditto in Goulburn. Um, I'm showing you these also because um, I want to talk a little bit about how institutions aren't just about objects in galleries, that institutions, and I feel very passionate about this, can also be about artist process, and process that can have a social outcome. 
Um, working with Jeanne van Hegewijk, Talking Trash out in Goulburn, was about getting people to think about ideas of recycling, but actually talking about their lives in the process. This is Angelica Masiti, an incredible project she did in Hurstville, where the local council asked us if we could do a project where an artist would help them um, get the local community engaged with telling them what the main issues were for them because they were doing these silly, you know, going around and doing surveys and nobody would answer them. So Angelica did a residency and came up with all these ideas for how she could create a real sense of community. And so she made wonderful artworks. The council went round on the night. We had 5,000 people turn up. They went round on the night, did their, their surveys. What do you think of Hurstville? Are these the issues that matter to you? Tick, tick, tick. Everybody was happy. So, you know, it is art that is about having a, a, an outcome. It's not art that just gets made in a studio, but an incredibly important part of current practice. And this is uh, Sylvie Bloch's and Francois, Francois' Compromo Urban project for Penrith, a complete reimagining of a city suburb by an incredible um, artist and city planner, um, a project that was really much more far-reaching than we ever expected. And we also sent Craig Walsh on tour across Australia, Digital Odyssey, and we ran touring exhibitions. So we were really about trying to suggest that a museum is not an institution that sits within its building in a particular location. A museum is something that has, is, a, is at the center of a network of contacts, whether it's through touring shows, buses that take things out, um, or whether it's with collaborations. And, and I should say C3 West is very much a collaboration. It's a collaboration between the MCA and five Western Sydney galleries. So we work very closely together and it's, it's running to this day. But of course, back to the museum, of course we have to do fabulous shows and they need the finance to do that. Oliver Ellison, um, Cree Horsefield, um, this is a show, Making It New. We did a, a focus on Australian art every couple of years, uh, a sort of group survey show. Um, James Angus, Richard Berenberen, show about um, climate change. This is the uh, Artist's Family Group. And Lucas Island. Lucas actually um, spent time in residence in the museum. It's pretty challenging, actually, because his, his brief was to show how appalling we were about um, environmental issues in the museum, the fact that we keep building walls and then disposing of them. Um, we weren't even very good at much recycling in the office. So Lucas came in and he did this incredible audit of the museum from an environmental perspective and then he put the results up here and, and he um, <clears throat> exposed actually how really bad we were. And, and I thought it was fantastic that an artist, it got everybody engaged. You know, and, and we are, you know, this was in 2010, so he really got the, the staff engaged and he got everybody thinking about these things and being very practical, but it was driven by him as an artist, not by some consultant coming in. Um, and I love the idea that artists can be problem solvers, that artists can actually help us come to grips, come to terms with some of the big issues of the time. Um, oops, I've done that one too fast. Um, yeah, there's um, Raquel Ormella in a similar vein, oops. I have got heavy fingers. Um, Julie Rapp, um, oops. Daniel um, Crooks, video piece. And then I'm showing you this image, because some of you may remember, this was the front gallery of the museum. When you went in the front door, there was this gallery, which was one of the higher spaces. The building, of course, is an old, it's actually an old office building that had been converted in the early 90s into a museum. So a lot of the ceiling heights are quite low. And this is what we call a double height gallery, because it goes through two floors. But as you can see, it's a pretty clunky space. It's got these huge 
um, columns, and this is actually a stairway that goes up. Um, this is Pr Primavera, uh, Amanda Marburg in Primavera. Um, and so as, we, as the museums, um, I guess our confidence grew and the numbers grew. So in the year that we went free, we doubled. So we went from 100,000 to 200,000 in one year. And the numbers just steadily kept growing. It was really fantastic. I mean, word got out there. You know, people loved coming. We did more education. But this education program is actually taking place in one of the spaces that we used for venue hire, very important part of our income, because we were only getting, we we're still only getting a third of our money from government, so we had to generate two thirds of our income. So every time there was a venue, a, a, a commercial hire, the poor old education team couldn't run classes. So there was a real conflict between our core mission, which is obviously to work with, with young people, and of course our need to earn money to do so. So big problem. And of course, when they weren't in the venue, they were in the galleries. Um, and it frankly got to the point where um, people couldn't get in. Um, I had a board member ring up one day and say, I can't get in, there's two school groups in the foyer. I said, well, <laughs> what do you want me to do? Tell them to go away? Um, and, you know, this kind of thing. That's the old foyer. So the, the numbers grew, the interest grew. Um, we managed to reconnect with artists. We set up an artist advisory group which is a fantastic experience initially, um, hearing from artists what they thought about us and also being able to explain to them that some of the things that to them might look obvious were actually very difficult to do. So all kinds of, a really great exchange. We still have a group, um, it changes every two years. Um, uh, Brisbane artist Richard Bell sits on it at the moment, as you can imagine, that's uh, fantastic. Um, Richard never loses an opportunity to give really great feedback and great contributions. Um, and so really making sure that artists are still, we never lose sight of the fact that we really are about artists. We're, we're this fairly big museum, fairly big, um, but we like to think of ourselves as being super flexible and, and super, you know, really wanting to help artists. And one of, the, the, one of the ways we've managed to do that, I think, is because we have an incredible team of installers. And, and Aileen, and, uh, you, you were mentioning to me earlier how fantastic they were over Stuart Ringholtz, whose wonderful work we bought. Um, they're almost all artists, and so they, they come in, obviously, to install shows, but they, it does give the, the museum a great ethos. It's more like a, a space like this, more like a contemporary space, and very different from a state museum that simply can't accommodate that level of flexibility. Um, at the moment, we're working on an amazing show with uh, Haynes and Hinterding, and most of it is being built by the install crew out at our storage space with the artists, and they're going to bring it in. So there's a sense in which the museum really helps artists make their work. It's not just you go to the studio, you, you see the work and you bring it to the museum, but how it's presented in the museum is a collaboration, a genuine collaboration, often between the curator and the artists and the install crew who actually have to deliver it. So by um, 2004, we were getting, um, we were up to half a million visitors. So it was getting a bit, um, the building was really suffering and so, I have to admit, somewhat reluctantly, I decided that we had to expand. And the reason why I say reluctantly is I did a building in Birmingham. And I told my best friend, if you ever hear of me doing another building, take me out and shoot me, please. Because it was awful. I absolutely, it was one of the most horrible experiences of my life. Had a great result, but it was so problematic. There were everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And we pulled it off in the end, but I think it was the most stressful two years I'd ever been through. And I said, I'm never doing it again. I'm about content. I don't believe that expanding buildings is the way to build audiences. I think it's about the art and the audience, and I'm never gonna do it again. Um, so I ended up doing this. 
Um, so a lot of problems with the building. And, and I think that's why, in the end, why I, I took a deep breath and said, OK, we're going to have to address this, because the old building was really problematic. Um, you entered through the middle. There were two entrances, on one on one side, one on the other. It was very complicated. People never knew. I used to spend half my life when I was in the lift saying, take the lift up to this, downstairs to the cloaking, or, you know. So it was really, really bad. So equity of access, that means for, and, and we had no disabled access, so it was shocking. The gallery I showed you earlier was completely inaccessible. So we came up with a series object, of objectives about equity, about circulation, about education programs, about the gallery spaces, money, obviously, and making it more visible as a contemporary space, because much as this building is quite extraordinary, it's very much an old building. It's not as old as you might think, but it is, it's a 1950s, it's designed in the 30s and built in the 50s, so uh, a, quite a forbidding building. And I remember when I came to Australia for the first time in the early 90s, and I walked along the quay, and at the time there was a sort of large, um, hedge right across in front of the of the entrance and you actually couldn't work out how to get in because there was no a friend of mine put it very well he said there's no desire line Lausanne there's nothing that draws you into that building so that that was what we decided was we needed something that said it was visible you know this is contemporary this is a museum this is not um just an, an old office building that's been converted um, it was a pretty tough um gig I have to say um we we worked very what we I should say there was a there's a piece of the jigsaw missing. We, we had been through two international design competitions in the past to remodel the museum, which was a little embarrassing because neither of them went ahead. One of them actually involved knocking the building down, which was really not a good idea. Um, so I was very reluctant to think about entering into another design competition. So what we decided to do was interview six practices, and I asked them you know, half a dozen questions um, number one for me was, which artist do you like? Because four out of five of the architects thought I was mad. Um, but that was what I was interested in, was how an architect might think about art and also might think, and then the second question was, what art spaces do you like? And what astonished me was that three out of five couldn't name one. Anyway, we ended up with this wonderful man called Sam Marshall, and we very quietly began developing a, a plan to solve the objectives, not to build a new extension, but to solve the objectives. And originally, we tried to do it internally, and it was impossible. So we ended up going right across the site and, and putting up this proposal. While we were doing it, we did something like 78 consultation meetings because we ha it's such a delicate site and there were so many issues around it. So we had a lot of um, background work to do and then finally we launched and we had to raise the money and in the end, long story, but a complete nightmare. We had uh, two donors came out with five million each to start it off, then we got some state money, then we raised a bit more private money and then the global financial crisis hit so all the money stopped. Um, and then the federal government announced stimulus money, but we couldn't qualify, so anyway, it went on. I, I wore out a lot of shoe leather in Canberra, I can tell you. In the end, we did it. And of course, having been pushed around, here's the man himself, I just mentioned you. Um, having been pushed from post to pillar with all the politicians, of course, as soon as the money was in place, guess what? They all turned up. Um, for those of you who don't know any of those characters, we have the then Minister for the Arts, Peter Gara, our Lord Mayor, um, our then Premier, um, our local member, um, another, another um, woman who had been the arts minister, they all wanted to be there. Um, yes, it was a very interesting day. So we started work. It was pretty extensive, a lot of building work, 
another big nightmare, but less of a nightmare than Birmingham, I have to say. We actually built on the car park site, so the next time you go to the museum's extension, you remember you're on a site of a car park, so it's a very bad use of space, and ended up, of course, with this, um, which has been absolutely extraordinary. I think what has happened is that it did everything we said it would. Um, it, not everybody likes it, but, you know, it's modern architecture. Um, very funny, some people thought it should be made of sandstone, some people thought it should be titanium, should be more like Frank Geary, it should be round, not square, so all these great discussions about modern architecture came out. But in the end of the day, it works. And it, I can tell you it works, because last year we had 942,000 visitors through. So we went from half a million in the old building into that. Um, it's not the building though, it's actually what's in it. It just makes it easier. It, it's got a great flow through, it's got a beautiful foyer, we put art up front, that's new commissions that happen in the foyer, that's um, Helen Eager's uh, first commission. New commissions up on the terrace, this is Heaney Armani, this is a wonderful fountain. Um, poor old Heaney, he, I brought him up when we were under construction and I said, this is the sculpture terrace, which we have to have for various reasons. Has to be called a sculpture terrace, wouldn't have been my favorite, but anyway, I had to do it. And I'd like, to commission a sculpture and he looked at me and he went you have to be kidding there's the opera house and there's the bridge and you want me to do something here and I said yeah and I have to say he pulled it off I mean it's an amazing work and it's it's actually a marble rendering of your inner ear so when it rains the water runs through and of course you that's what keeps you balanced and for me, it's also like it's listening to the city. So it's, it's a really beautiful piece. It's now, um, it's, it, the commissions are for a year. So every year to 18 months, we commission a new one. Um, and this piece is now down at Heidi. So if you're ever down at the gardens at Heidi, have a look. It's quite wonderful. And then, of course, we have a beautiful cafe. We have a great shop. We have a lecture theater. We have a digital studio. Um, and all the things that really make up great facilities. We also have an incredible room for our students with disabilities. Again, a commission to an artist each year. This is Emily Floyd's wonderful piece, um, which uh, was for children with, um, with visual disabilities. That piece is now in Emily's touring exhibition and will come back and become part of the MCA collection. Um, wonderful studios for, our, um, for our, all our programs. And we did do, we never set out to make the galleries bigger, but we did set out to improve them. And this shows you one of the wonderful new galleries with a work by Anish Kapoor, and then earlier work by Lindy Lee in the opening show. Um, really beautiful galleries. And th these are the lower ones, but it just shows you, you can still put great works into those difficult spaces. The other thing that's really important about what we've done is our emphasis on collecting, which is what makes us very distinctive. We're not like, um, uh, we're not like, obviously like IMA, because we, we do build a collection, and it's something we thought about for a long time. Should we have a collection? Should we not have a collection? I think it's incredibly important. It's, it's giving confidence to artists, and to, in order to, to be able to do that, we made the decision that we would only buy Australian art. And that's been quite controversial, I have to say. Every so often a board member jumps up and goes, why don't you buy an Anish Kapoor? Well, if somebody would like to write me a check for the kind of money that Anish Kapoor costs, I still wouldn't want to spend it on one because everybody's got an Anish Kapoor internationally, but not everybody has the first Daniel Boyd like this, an early Daniel Boyd. Um, so to actually focus on Australian art, and it's, there's a whole floor dedicated to Australian art now, and that is really fantastic when I bring international visitors through. An early work by Fiona Hall, um, 
and so on. And so it's really become this great resource, resource for schools, resource for visitors, um, resource for curators. And obviously we're now, um, we have a foundation and we're now building um, funds to actually, um, to actually add much more significantly to the collection than we have in the past. Um, lots of interesting dilemmas around collecting, which I'll, I'll come back to later. The other thing I should say, which I haven't mentioned before, is that we have a very strong policy of integrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art with everything else. So you won't see an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander gallery at the MCA. You will always see Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art of all kinds, whether it's Emily on the wall here or these amazing um, fish traps from Maningrida shown alongside Ildiko Kovacs at the back there or whether it's um, um, Gordon Bennett's work in, 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 alongside Juan de Villa as it was in the opening hang. That's Rebecca Bauman, another uh, artist from Perth. Oops, this keeps jumping. Um, the other thing we did with this, and this is really very important in terms of the discussion about the future of museums, is that we put in incredible technology into our learning center. We can actually reach every school in New South Wales and Victoria. And we've been trialing digital excursions. I mean, what does that really mean? How, can you really access an art gallery and have a meaningful experience digitally? It's a question that we're still working on. And we, we just know that there's a huge demand from regional and remote schools that can't actually get to the museum for resources, resources about our collection. And after all, because we're about living artists, and I should say that, we, we, we are very much focused on the art of today. We can have the artist there. We can have the artist do an interview. You can download that interview, or you can even have the artist in the National Center for Creative Learning, and the school or the community center, whatever, can actually access it digitally and, and have a, a two-way conversation. So it's incredible. Um, and we realized the power of it when we actually did a program in the Northern Territory called Burali. <coughs> and that's Vernon Aki, by the way, actually. I've, didn't realize I'd put that one in. Um, we did this program in, in, in the Northern Territory. It was Keith Monroe, our, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander curator. And he, at the end of the week, he did something very, no, at the beginning of the week, he did something very simple. He was, he was doing a project around uh, a show by Lofty Bardayil that we had in the museum. But he decided to link the school with Vernon's studio here in Brisbane. And he just used Skype, because of course, they didn't have the facilities. It was unbelievable. By the end of the week, that school had 100% attendance, and the teachers were seeing kids they hadn't seen for a long time, because word went around the community, this is a really cool dude, he's in Brisbane, he's talking about his work, so they got, I had to get Vernon back, you know, to, to talk again, because this incredible response went out. And of course, for these kids, you know, to see someone like Vernon, who's talking about his travels and how he went to the National Gallery of Canada and they bought his work and how he was in Venice and so on and so forth, and then talking about what his work means and what, what he's doing was just a complete eye-opener. We've now run this program in rural and regional New South Wales and it had absolutely a similar effect. So I am completely convinced that this is the key to getting kids into school, kids who are disaffected and don't want to learn. Art will do it. And I'm sure everybody involved will know what I'm talking about, but this was in a, a really quite extraordinary. And we had a phone call about a month ago from the school to say that um, for the first time, two students had completed uh, year 12 and they'd done this program. Now, I can't prove this program did it, but the teachers certainly feel that it had, had an impact. Um, this keeps jumping. 
Yes, yeah, so um, working with technology, on the right, the, the green, this is one of our experiments. We, we commissioned Agatha Gold Snape, some of you may know Agatha's work, um, to do a digital excursion, to actually do it as an artwork. Um, we're still trialing it. I'm not sure whether it's going to work. It's really complicated. But because she's an artist who uses PowerPoint, it makes a lot of sense. So she's actually created this... Um, this interaction which requires our educators in our space with like a, a, a green screen and then there's elements of video that get sent out to the school and the whole thing ties together in some way that is totally beyond me. And, um, and it's an artwork but it's also about learning about art. So it's quite a complicated project and I love it because I think it's, it's again an artist bringing a series of challenges to something that is not just about let's give an, an interview with an artist, let's actually turn that whole, th whole process into an artwork and see what happens. And of course the digital studio and all the programs we do. The other thing that I think is really critical to what we do, I, I mentioned earlier my, my um, concern about us curators hanging on to information and not being prepared to share it. And likewise, we have an incredible team of front of house staff. Again, a lot of them are, are artists, they're now called hosts. Not a name I'm particularly comfortable with, but they chose it. Um, and so we decide, and the hosts are encouraged not just to be guards, they're actually, you know, they're, they're, they, they come to all the walkthroughs, they learn about the work, and they're able to talk to the audience and hopefully make an audience, people who might feel a bit uncomfortable, feel comfortable. And so we started this thing called Spotlight Tours. So the hosts um, give a five minute talk about a work they really like. And so it's a very nice way of getting our, our front of house team very much engaged with the art and, and getting a way, another way of getting the audience to have more information. This is Lawrence Eberhard's photographs that we had on at the time. Um, and I think one of, the thing, one of the things that's become a bit of a mantra for us is we make challenging work accessible. It does not mean changing the work. You don't change the program, you don't change the art, but you do change the way you talk about it and you change the way that people feel about it when they're in the space. And I really think that actually, more than the building, is the secret to the numbers. People don't feel intimidated when they come into the MCA. There are always nice, friendly faces on the front desk who are polite and help them. There are nice, friendly faces in the galleries who can talk about the work. Um, and the front of house team are extraordinary. They're really, again, many of them are artists, many of them are part-time. We have incredible training programs for them, um, and they're really engaged. I mean, they just, the last weekend, we were open till nine o'clock every night for Vivid, and it was insane. And they were just phenomenal, that team, really incredible, um, quite extraordinary. Generation Next, I mentioned before, that's the program for teenagers. It has grown and grown and grown. Every time we survey them, this is the digital generation, this is the Google generation, this is the millennials. What do they want? They want the art. So the thing about Generation Next, it's a Sunday night. Yes, there's a social element, of course. That's one of the great things about galleries. You can all sit here and have a glass of wine. You don't have to be quiet. You can talk, once I've finished. Um, you can talk, you can interact, you can network. You're not going to a theater where you have to sit down for two hours and watch something. So coming to a gallery is a really extraordinary experience and, and we've discovered that it's absolutely top of the pops for young people. They love it um, and they love the art. So they, they always rate the art comes number one, the social experience is number two, the food is number three, no, sorry, the bands are number three and the, and the food is number four. So we have no doubt, and as I said, the numbers have gone through the roof. It averages 600 um, teenagers. And we've made a big, um, a big effort to bring teenagers from Parramatta in particular, which is only half an hour away. So those of you who understand the politics of Sydney will know how important and interesting that is to bring kids from the western suburbs 
who are, some of whom are on the committee. It's, it's, a, it's a, th a thing that's run by kids for kids. Um, and that inter interaction between kids from different backgrounds is quite something. We start them young. That's art, baby. That's the Bella program. That's some kids interacting. And then we have a thing called Art Bar. Now, for us, the, the team wanted to run a, a bar. And I said, I'm just so not interested in this. Not interested in running a bar. So somebody said, how about if we give an artist the brief to turn the wing into an artistic experience the last Friday of every month? So we sort of went, oh, God. We know what it's like with artists. But why not? Let's have a go. Well, it's been running for three years now. Um, we do it once a month. Rebecca Bauman did the last one for Vivid. It is fantastic. And they do all kinds of things. They do parties out on the, on the deck. They even do lectures. And I must admit, when I went to the first one, um, there was an incredible, it was, there, was a, there was going to be a series of lectures. And I was going, it's a Friday night. Nobody's going to sit in the lecture theater on a Friday night. Well, guess what? There was a queue for the lecture theater. And what I think is really interesting, and this is obviously a slightly older demographic than the Gen Next lot, but these people want content. They don't just want to come and have a party. They actually are very interested in the artistic side of it. And okay, it's not, it's art with a bit of fun around it. You know, we've had live goats. We've had a, we had a whole lot of cats one night. I don't know what that was all about. We've had a tattoo parlor, but we've also had programs of videos. I think we had Santa Claus one year. We had a black Santa, didn't we, Richard? Fantastic. So we have, and Brooke Andrew turned the whole place into this incredibly provocative environment where he asked all kinds of questions about identity. You know, so the, each artist takes it on and, and, and turns it into their own, um, their own night. Um, it nearly drives the events crew totally insane because it, you know, it's different every time. Um, but it's grown and grown, and again, it's now, it, the last five have been completely sold out, so it, it's clearly building a, a, you know, a really interested audience. Um, and the artists love it, you know, and it's not for all artists, but most artists, you know, right, John Campbell from Melbourne did one, I don't know if people know John's work, and so it's not always, you know, the kind of usual artist you think might want to do this kind of work, maybe performance or video artists, but artists working in different media just love the idea of taking this on. Um, we're very fortunate, Audi sponsor it, and, and, and they love it too, although we do find they start to get a bit creative and they think they're the artists and start doing weird things with their car on the forecourt that they think is art, so we just have to kind of take a deep breath. Sure. Anyone who's engaged with sponsors knows what happens when they think they can be artists. So on the one hand, we have Art Bar, and on the other hand, how do we hang on to the space for contemplation? Because there is still a need for it. And we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is Rivana Neuschwander's piece in Marking Time. Really wonderful. People literally lay on the floor and, and loved it. And then, of course, we go outside the building. That's, uh, that's Kapoor's wonderful sky mirror. There's the amazing Yoko Ono on the terrace with her wish trees. Um, we know that interaction is something people love. So coming along and tying your wishes onto those trees um, was really quite something, as was putting where you come from onto her maps and her other work. But there are other shows that are just beautiful shows. Annette Messager, incredible work. Chuck Close, revelatory, I think, for many people. Sean uh, Healy and, uh, Claire Healy and Sean Cordiero, two wonderful Australian artists in the big space. Very provocative show curated by Brooke Andrew called Taboo. Very interestingly, we had this on the ground floor of the museum. Um, we had lots of warning signs. 
we made sure people knew that the show had difficult content in it, and Brooke took the whole lot on. If there was one taboo he didn't break, I can't think of it. Um, we had one complaint in the whole run of the show, one complaint, and um, very interesting. And it, it, we had people were very happy to take their kids in once it was explained to them they could make a decision whether they took their kids in, but there was all kinds of um, uh, stories to be told and difficult content for people to discuss. And what we discovered was that parents actually quite liked having an opportunity to discuss difficult subjects with, with younger children. So there was no problem with it at all. Um, it was very tough work for the, for the front of house because they had to make sure that people did know. It wasn't like big warning signs. We never say, you know, you will be shocked or this is, you know, whatever. We always say there is nudity or there is explicit content. We say what it is is in the show. Um, same here. So it was, it was an experiment and it was amazing. The thing that was most, most criticised about this exhibition was the lack of labels. So again, this thing about people's demand for knowledge, for more information, that, that, that Brooke, and, and I had to explain, because it was curated by an artist, in effect it was an art installation, and I argued with Brooke about it. And I gave in, and he, he didn't want labels anywhere. There was, an, uh, there was information, but you had to look for it. And we had a very, that was the only negative reaction from the audience was we didn't know what we were looking at. Where were the labels? Um, so very, uh, a very provocative show that had absolutely no, um, no criticism. Beautiful show, Mardu Artist from Far Western Desert. A recent show by, uh, curated by Natasha Bullock from our collection, Peter Cripps' work we've had for many years and had never shown since 91. Um, Rose Nolan. And what I'm coming to now is, is what do we collect and why do we collect? Well, we obviously collect objects, but we also want to collect work that is difficult to collect. So we have Christian Caporo, another misspent portrait of Etienne de Silhouette, which some of you will be familiar with. And, and this project really requires all the ephemeral um, projects that go with it. So he organizes all kinds of meetings and discussions and debates. And how do you reflect that in a collection? And something we're working very much on looking at. We have something called the Contemporary Art Archive, which does actually try and capture that kind of more ephemeral work. And then the other side of the coin, of course, is huh, I committed to buying a work that we actually can't get in the galleries. <laughs> Sorry, we can't get it into our storage. We can get it into this gallery. Uh, it's too big for our storage. Um, so um, I did know that, but I didn't tell anybody because I thought it was such a great piece. Um, you'll have seen it here, I'm sure. And, um, and uh, my conservator and my registrar were incredibly fantastic about it because when they when it arrived, they realized how amazing it was. And I said, we, I, we just had to have it. Um, great work. And then, of course, um, yes, we, have, we are now the proud owners of the nude tours. Yes, we did buy them. We own the concept. Um, of this wonderful project, uh, which we had, um, this particular iteration took place during the opening week of the museum. Um, this particular gallery, uh, this wonderful Robert Owen, um, has a large floor-to-ceiling window. And of course, the nude tours took place at night. And we had all these precautions so the nudists wouldn't bump into other um, you know, people in the museum got them into the galleries, and then we realized there was a crowd gathering on George Street because of the lights. <laughs> could see everything in the galleries. Anyway, sold out, all the tours. You've probably seen the recent National Gallery iteration in the James Terrell, um, which was also likewise fantastic. So I said to Stuart, having bought the clock, I said we really should have the new tours, so, so we, we have them. Trying to explain to the director of the National Gallery that we own the new tours, I have to say, was a little challenging. He could not get his head around it. Um, um, Taba Imo, amazing uh, video work. Um, 
So one of the challenges, I think, for museums is how do we represent this incredible diversity of work? How do we go from Tabaimo with his amazing video work to Peter Cripps, which is much more conceptual, to you know, Stuart's um, new tours, to, to you know, Christian Capuro. So this incredible, I mean, aren't we lucky? I mean, what fabulous um, artists we're able to, to engage with. And, and an institution like ours should be representing that diversity and not losing sight of all these different, and you can only do so much, of course, so it's a big challenge. Um, I found this wonderful quote by um, Carsten Schubert called, uh, talking about the museum is changing, about it was, the old idea of the museum was the, the authority, this is what art is, and you, come and look at it and worship it and whatever. And of course, we all know that that's been a long time since that's not been the case. And one of the things that struck me as so fantastic about technology is that it helps us with that issue, that issue about you, the audience, should feel free to respond. Because what is happening now? You're all responding to everything. So museums, it's great. Instead of having screeds of labels on the walls, you can actually have iPads, as we had here, where people can write their responses or draw their responses or speak their responses into the technology and share it, of course, which is the big thing. So I, I'm a huge believer in the role of technology in, in interpretation. But what I, I do get worried about is I keep reading articles and seeing quotes that, you know, the next generation, the millennials, don't like it has to be digital, they're not interested, museums will die, they're all blah, 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 blah. So, you know, when I see all these kids queuing up to come to the museum, I think, what's going on? And I think what's really going on, oh, and I should say, we had something last weekend called a zine fair. Do you all know what a zine is? Yeah. You take a piece of paper, you make a drawing, you staple it together, you cut it, you put bits of collage on it, you're doing stuff, real stuff. We had 10,000 people in two days at the zine fair. And the person who was promoting it most was a very foremost blogger who was blogging all about how you make zines. Go figure, technology and making. So this return of the craft, this idea that people want to do stuff, see stuff, be with stuff, I think is incredibly important. I mentioned the Bellarum Commission last year. It was Brown Council, fabulous piece, video piece. This is our new sculpture on the terrace by Sangeeta Sandra Seagar and our new commission to Dan Boyd. So, I think that the challenges ahead are fantastic. I think the opportunities are amazing. I don't think we should ever worry too much that the digital generation are gonna stop going because I think as long as we engage them with the digital, we can still get them to engage with the real because that's what they wanna do. They wanna be in a social space and they want to engage with the real. I do think the visual arts moment has come actually because I think it's much more difficult for conventional art forms to change. It's much more difficult for a symphony orchestra or the ballet or so on. They, they can do wonderful things, but it's much more difficult to become those kind of very special social spaces that everybody knows people want now. They want to come, they want to see art, but they want to have a cup of coffee, they want to meet their friends, they want to have a glass of wine, and they might want to buy something in the gift shop while they're at it. So the museum has to become a place of experience at the same time as allowing that contemplative space that I mentioned earlier, because I think that is incredibly important, and I think it will become more important that people have the opportunity to come somewhere that's special. I walked through the galleries yesterday, actually, I was taking our premiere through, and there was a group of, uh, a group of <coughs> boys sitting on the floor, and they were literally, their jaws dropped when they walked into the galleries. They had, this was a group of boys from Western Sydney, little, they were about seven, I think, seven or eight, 
They had never been in a gallery before. They were absolutely gobsmacked at the experience. Um, we bring kids into the MCA from, from parts of Western Sydney who've never seen the harbour. It's 50 kilometres away and they've never seen the harbour. And that's why we invested so much in those education facilities because we wanted them to have a really special space. Go into the gallery and then come into these wonderful spaces with views of the Opera House and be able to develop their own projects, their own creativity, their own ideas, their own responses to art. So the facilities, the quality of the facilities is, is incredibly important. Um, I think the numbers will peak, and I'd be very happy when they do. I mean, I haven't got a projection that says we need to get to a million and a half. I think what's important now is not getting more people, but the important thing is about the level of engagement. We want people to go from being people who come once to people who come five times. And our stats on that are actually very good. And also we want them not only just to come, but then to want to find out more, come to a lecture, come and meet the artist, go online, download more. So the mantra really is about deepening the engagement, not about just the superficial, come in, have a cup of coffee and see something. That's fine, some people will always be at that level. Um, but to actually go further than that and get people to, to come, become passionate about contemporary art, as passionate as, as we certainly all are in the museum. Um, so there it is, that's the new extension. That's a, a commission on the outside also to Brooke Andrew um, in recognition of the fact that the building does sit on the site of first contact. There are historic docks actually underneath the building um, that we were able to resist um, unveiling because there's actually nothing there. It's just a few, it's nothing really. Um, but we did want to mark the fact that it's an incredibly important site and to us to have a, an Aboriginal artist do that and make this um, really very beautiful um, sign pointing down, moving neon sign pointing down and then there's a beautiful piece of poetry actually cast into the concrete that, that refers to the arrival uh, of, the, of the first fleet. It's a, very, it's a very elegiac work, really quite beautiful. Um, I think I've got to the end of my 102 slides or whatever it was, um, and that's probably enough. I think as you probably gather, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm enormously um, optimistic. I think we're going through difficult times, of course, funding-wise, everywhere. And I think, of course, the digital gives us huge challenges because if we divert resources to the digital and we forget the real, I think we'll be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So what we have to be trying to do is be clever about expanding the resources that are available and making great partnerships so that we can do things, um, do things differently without ever look at losing sight of, for us, the core function of a museum, which is basically collecting, exhibiting, and interpreting contemporary art. Thank you. And I'm very happy to take questions. <laughs> no, well, actually, if you look carefully, it actually the N is actually there. We were aware of it, to be honest with you. We were aware of it, but I couldn't talk. There was one thing I had to, you know, the architect was so lovely. He really didn't impose much. But he was really, really struck on wrapping that round. And so it was, yeah. When I first came, funny story, the, the, back, the doors onto George Street said contemporary. And when they opened, it was contemporary. And I just thought, how could you do that? <laughs> so stupid. I mean, really, it was just asking for John McDonald to poke fun at, <laughs> as he duly did. The other thing about the museum when I came was that they, they, um, they, they, I have to say the front of house staff were very problematic. They were all very unfriendly. And um, 
for various reasons, but they were all dressed in black. And I remember being in the lift one day with our then marketing manager, and I said, oh, for goodness sake, why do they always dress in black? Do they not realize, do we, you know, can't we do something about this? You know, this is the, the you know, it's very, uh, it makes them look very unfriendly. It's a kind of, it's a code in the art world for being in a particular kind of club. Wouldn't it be great to make them, get them to wear something else? And, and my marketing manager said, oh, that's what we tell them to wear. We tell them they have to wear black. I said, well, that's the first thing we'll change. You can tell them they can wear colors from now on. And little things like that really, really make a difference. So you're quite right. It's a bit silly, but they keep trying to get me to put more signs up, and I keep refusing. I just, I can't, I don't want to sully the outside of the building. Yeah. But how very much by this presentation it almost seems everyone has focused on the outside as we are on the inside. Yeah, I keep annoying the board because I keep saying the MCA is not a building. Mm. And they kind of go, We just spent fifty three million dollars creating one. I went, It's not a building. It's about but reaching you, out. Do you actually can you count any of those audiences or can yes. you count we can't. We, C3 West is very complicated, so we tend not to include C3 West, but we can count our touring shows, so the touring shows go to regional galleries mostly. Um, Craig's Digital Odyssey travelled extensively, and we did, actually, we did actually work on numbers for that. I think that reached 220,000 or something, but no, we do. We do, I mean, we always, and I'm always very careful, we say who's going through the building and then what the touring programmes add. But the time you add the touring programmes were over a million a year, so... I think for a contemporary art museum, that's pretty good going. How do you establish the program for one, two, three years ahead? The social agenda, the balance between the yeah. yeah, there's a, that's everybody asks how how the program works, and we have a curatorial team, and we involve our. Um, our education team and we involve our um, registration team and we basically we hammer out ideas and so we end up it's I always say to people it's a bit like a, putting together a great meal you have all these ingredients you know you might have 10 or 12 ideas and then you have to work out how they all fit together and you have to think about you know regional versus you know Australian versus international solo versus um, you know, group shows, um, whether it's what the medium are, you know, painting versus photography, male, female, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, we have specific targets, um, which I think are really important because they can then be measured. Um, yeah, and we toss it all up. And But I always say to people, there is no recipe that can tell you what we will or will not show. I mean, people have come to me with proposals and said, why don't you do a show of X? And what I always say is, unless one of the curators comes forward and says, I really want to do this show, we wouldn't do it. Because to me, what really works for us is when you have a really great relationship between the curator and the artist. And if I was to say, okay, we've got a list of 20 artists, you know, you'll do that one and you'll do that one and you'll do that one, you just wouldn't, you can, you can feel the difference when you've actually got that relationship. So it's unfortunate for many artists because it just may be that the three curators at the museum are not interested in their work at this particular moment. 
but then the curator will leave and another one will come. So it's, it's, I think that element of the curatorial, of a particular curator arguing their case, and then me and Blair French, who's our director of digital and curatorial, and the rest of the team working out how we fit the whole thing together. Um, I have to do the bit about pay-show versus non-pay-show because that's the bit the board get most excited about. I mean, they love seeing the program, but they also love seeing numbers. And uh, I, I'm, I think we have proved the value of free access because our shop takings have gone up, our cafe gets more money. You get money off people in other ways. Um, and donations go up and the government's happy and all the rest of it. So free access to me is incredibly important, but we do do this one pay-show a year. And believe you me, that is probably the thing that is most discussed. What is going to work? What is not going to work? How, what, what is a pay show that may, you know? What is a good number for a pay show in the summer? You know. And unfortunately, we 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 um, um, we did an Annie Leibovitz show, which was just on the edge of what I think is really our remit. But we did it because Annie Leibovitz, that particular show, was done by Brooklyn Museum, and it was actually fantastic. It was about her relationship with Susan Sontag who she lived with for many years. So it was kind of Annie Leibovitz, but not the celebrity. But of course, there were some celebrities in it. But it was really about that. But of course, now, our, of course, the expectation from you know, events and tourism and all the rest of it is, why can't you do Annie Leibovitz again? You know, 175,000 paid visitors. Well, we're not, actually. And actually, it was a very specific show. I, I remember in Brit when I worked in the UK, we used to call it the Lego Syndrome. Because a, a gallery in Bradford did the Lego show one year and they got something like 200,000 visitors. And then every gallery around the country's councillors would go, why can't we have a Lego show? You know? So everybody would be looking for the next Lego show. And it's a bit like us. We're, going, we're always going, what's the next Leibovitz? I think finally, I've, I think finally found a way of, of getting rid of the legacy. Um, 100,000 is about, uh, would be a good pay show, I reckon. A good contemporary pay show of an artist who's not known. Coming up this year, Grayson Perry. We'll see what Grayson does. He's such a media tart, he'll probably go through the roof. Really? Yeah, that's a very good question because it's different from exhibitions. Then it's not just about a curator's passion, it's about something else. Um, we, have, we have a number of criteria. One is we, we do actually talk about difficult work. We like to think that we buy work that other institutions wouldn't buy. So we talk about building a unique collection. Um, you know, we're always looking, if we're buying an artist, we think, well, if the art gallery's got that, why would we do it? You know, we need to try and look at what makes us a bit different. Um, Mid-career, older artists buying significant bodies of work from them, and then at the other extreme, buying artists when they're just mainly from Primavera, actually. We actually have a, a policy of buying work from Primavera because it is the show we do every year where we, you know, we give different curators a chance to show who they think are the most interesting younger artists. And so we try to buy from Primavera. So that Primavera is a strand. Um, the Contemporary Art Archive, which is buying more ephemeral work. Um, we've been talking a lot about how do we collect performance, what kind of, what does that look like? Um, these are the sort of general guidelines, really, that, that, that we look at. And um, it's pretty tough, and it's very, very um, passionately argued, because we only buy, well, we have a, about $250,000 a year to spend, so it's not a huge amount. We're growing that, and it's going to grow substantially over the next year, but it's not a huge amount of money, so obviously it's got to be very... Um, 
well argued whether, and also how things relate to the existing collection. And um, we've got amazing things, like you know, bringing that Peter Cripps out was just fantastic. I mean, we'd never shown it. it was, we got it in 91. So, um, and, and thinking about what is it happening now, you know, what, what trends should we be reflecting and, and how can we um, take on more difficult things? Um, I think donors love buildings. It's much harder to raise money for programs. Um, having said that, I think the fact that we did, um, we did reasonably well with the building meant that we've got a pool of people who've continued. Most people who gave to the building have continued to give, so that's the good thing. And it's now two years on, so we feel ready to ask them again. So most of them we've asked have given again. Um, so I think that it was good. I think it was also good because it brought some new people in that we hadn't spoken to before. So there's, there's pros and cons of a building campaign. Um, I, I'm, I think I'm often on the public record. I, I don't believe in buildings driving audiences. I just don't believe it's the right strategy. And I think your building should, be, should come out of your programming, not the other way around. And if you don't have great programs, the building will eventually fail because people don't just come for buildings. So, I mean, of course, there are examples around the world. Bilbao is one of them, but um, you can't. It's, it's a very particular set of circumstances in Bilbao, I think. Um, so, yeah, the, the capital campaign helped um, in some ways. In other ways, it was a pain in the arse. But anyway, we did it, and um, and yeah, it was, was great. I mean, it's great to be able to demonstrate to government that you've got support. Um, I think it's really important, and I think my chairman felt. My then chairman and my current chairman felt very strongly that they that, that they needed to put their hands up first before going to government to show that there was strong private support before they actually tried to get money from the public purse. Um, is actually how does that how does it you know does it filter down I think it does um, I think if you talk to um, Alexi or before her Blair art space they would acknowledge that the MCA raising the profile generally of contemporary art is more likely to make people to encourage people to go there I mean I've certainly seen people down at art space now that I've never seen before at openings and so on, donors in particular. I think it's really interesting the way that the independent spaces, and I know you're doing the same here, have been able to encourage donors to come, you know, come and support institutions like this. I mean, that would have been unheard of 10 years ago. Would have been totally unheard of. A space like this getting donors? No way. It's too weird. So I think, you know, you know it's moving. Th I, think, I think it's really great that contemporary arts become mainstream. I don't, I'm not ashamed of the fact that it's mainstream and not out on the margins anymore. Um, 
But I think it's got to be more than sightseeing. So I'm not interested in, in 100,000 people trekking through the gallery and just looking. I, I really want the 100,000 people. And they won't come back. You see, the thing is people, they'll have the experience once, but if it's not meaningful, they won't come back. You know, there's so many other things they can do. They can go to the cinema, they can go walk on the beaches. We're competing for people's time. So I think the very fact that we are able to sustain that audience, and our audience is, you know, it's shot up after the reopening, and each year it's growing. Again, it's growing about 10% a year. That means that we are actually achieving that. How we measure the level of engagement is another question. It's about, do they, do they go to a talk? Um, and we're, we're just about to in install, this is technology again, but we're about to in install a CRM system, customer relation management or whatever it's called, system, which will tell us if someone buys something in the shop, are they also a donor? You know, so the whole thing is joined up. I don't know if anyone else, probably Goma can do that, but I, I've never heard of it before. But this is the key, is that you want the person that comes through the door to eventually end up you know, going, to all these, going through all these different levels of engagement and then going and buying, a, going and going to, you know, loving a, a work of art and going to find out the commercial gallery and going and buying it. Um, I've got no evidence whether that is, will, will work, but, but something tells me it should. But I think it requires us all to be much more collaborative. I, I do think we all work far too much in isolation. It's very bad in Sydney. It's getting better, but it's, it's not great. And I think it, it, it needs us, it needs the art gallery, it needs art space, it needs performance space. The whole ecology needs to be part of the same sector and really helping each other, not competing. And I think that's one of the worst things about the funding system is it forces you to be in competition. If you write a business plan, you have to write who your competitors are. You know, I mean, to me, that's just completely counterproductive. I don't see the art gallery, I don't see any of these institutions as competitors. I don't even see the opera house or the performing arts as competitors, in a way. I think it's part of the same system, and if we can really try to, you know, expand the audience and expand the donor base, it's better for everybody. Out. Yeah. Yeah, we do do international touring. Um, we've done quite a bit of it. It's just money, and it's it's also. I mean, I can I can speak from the other side, as it were. When I was working in Birmingham, when I came to Australia, um, you know, to to a conference, and and I just thought the work here was incredible. But there are a lot of barriers to taking it, not least the transport costs and the airfares and all the rest of it. So Australia has an enormous disadvantage, obviously. Um, and how you overcome that is, is something I, I, I think a lot about. And for me, my, I think our role, as much as sending shows out is important, it's much more important to get the curators here, to spend the money bringing curators from around the world to look at what's happening here, because ultimately they're much happier when they're making their decisions the sending out of packages, I mean, the funding bodies think you can just package up a, you know, Destiny Deacon show and send it out. It doesn't work like that. And we, this is where we have a problem with the performing arts because festivals performing, Bangara can do their latest season. They can at short notice go to London to a festival. For us to do the same thing with a visual arts show is almost impossible because all the venues you'd want to send it to will be programmed two years ahead. So we have this huge thing around timing. Um, and as I say, I think the fact that Carolyn Christoph Bacargief was here for, you know, two years for the Sydney Biennale and then put all those fabulous artists in Documenta, um, same with Catherine de Zieger, you know, I think to get more curators here is really the key. And then they will, you'll, and we are seeing already, 
Australian artists being seen overseas seamlessly, not this is Australian art. The last thing we should do is another Australian art show. They should be banned, especially after the Royal Academy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what are the solutions and, and what is your attitude or priorities about what those groups who do inspire to attract? Yeah. Um, we do. Um, we do it, I don't think we do it particularly well. In fact, we've just um, changed our system and we're doing, going to be doing very different kind of research. We do very perfunctory research at the moment, but Essentially, our audience um, is about 75% Australian, 25% international. You'd think it would be higher, given where we are, and that's partly because our whole focus has been on local visitors in the belief that I think if, if local visitors are coming and enjoying something, they'll tell visitors, you know, tourists will come as a matter of course. I have a new head of comms who's very interested in the tourism strategy, so we may change that over the coming months. But it's roughly, the tourism figures sit around 20, between 20 and 25% and the rest. Um, of that, um, obviously the majority are Sydney. Um, there's a significant regional New South Wales number, which I can't remember off the top of my head. And then the demographics break down. It's 70% um, under 35. But it is going up which is interesting. We're getting a much older audience now than we did in the old building. And I think it's because, I don't know what it is, actually. That's one of the things I'm trying to find out. Um, it may be the cafe, the fact that, and, and by the way, I should say, our numbers are people through the galleries, not people to the cafe. The cafe numbers are separate. We've got systems set up because I, yeah, anyway, you, you never pretend that people are coming through galleries when they're actually going to cafes or going to events. It just comes back to bite you. Um, so we're rigorous about our figures. And th but there are a lot more um, older people, I think, coming, people with leisure, who've realized that the building is very easy to access. They'll come in, they'll have a look at something, and then meet a friend for a coffee. So there's a lot. Uh, the average age has actually gone up slightly, which is interesting. Um, yeah, so I, I don't think we're very good at it. I think we know the basics, but we'd love to know more, and we need to get more into what motivates people. Um, we know a lot about the young audience, actually. They're the ones who've been surveyed endlessly and much more about them. Jock. The small and medium sector is about to take a hit. Yeah. Um, can you comment on the value of that sector to the big institutions? And what, what kind of like things like the Chaos Network, for example, mm. and the, the Intermediate Aspects Network, what value they could be differently to institutes with the IMB and the I think you've got to have everything. I mean, I think if you cut off the bottom end, what, you, know, it's, you know, I mean, people say to us, why don't you have a project space? And I say, because that's what art space does. I, I think for us to have a project space is just not, it, we've had long discussions about this actually, and not all the curators agree with me, but I, I think that's where the, you know, where this kind of thing happens. It's something else, it's different, it has a different dynamic, it has a different audience, it has a different, you know, opportunity for experimental work, failure, all these other things. We like to think we, allow ourselves to fail, we, you know, but I'm not sure if we can, really, given where we are. Um, so you have, of course, you've got to have all, the whole sector, and that, that's the irritating thing about, you know, the kind of lack of understanding about that particular situation, I think. Um, we'll see. Watch this space, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very concerned about a lot of the Western Sydney youth organisations like Powerhouse Youth Theatre in Fairfield and 
we've done, you know, Karen Therese, who's the artistic director there, did an art bar with us, brought, you know, I don't know if everybody knows these guys who do parkour, where they go tumbling all over the place. It's terrifying. They wanted to do it off the top of the building. We nearly had a heart attack. But, you know, we, so we work with organisations like that, very much so. And, you know, if that goes, that's the whole energy, you know, it's the whole kind of, you know, where, where things get tried out for the first time. So, um, we'll see. We'll see. Can't survive by opera alone. Um, the Telegraph's great, actually. They've, they've, the Telegraph's a very interesting newspaper. I mean, I, I'm from Britain. I know what a tabloid is. They're not a tabloid. They've been fine. In fact, that was the interesting thing was after the government came out, finally the government came out and announced the, the, that they were going to give us annual money, um, there wasn't a single word of criticism anywhere. It was extraordinary, actually. I was slightly alarmed. We were trolling through the, going through the regional papers thinking somebody's got to criticize them, but there was not a single word. So they, they, we, we made friends with them. My first press conference, I said to the, my media manager, I said, where's the Daily Telegraph? Oh, we don't invite them. It's not our demographic. I mean, no wonder we were bankrupt, you know? So, uh, you know, we made friends with them. And they're actually, actually the best visual arts writer in the country writes for the Daily Telegraph, Elizabeth Fortescue. She's fantastic. She's much more open-minded. She writes for art, um, the art newspaper, and she has a good run in the Telegraph. So it's a very interesting newspaper. Um, you know, I think we can talk about the way that newspapers have changed anyway. I mean, they're all, they're all you know, chasing after news and getting stories inaccurate. And you probably all saw the thing about how we cancelled a Marina Abramovich show last week. It's just, you know, not the story at all. But, you know, it's not even worth trying to correct it because you'll just get yourself into more of a, a beat-up of some kind. So we just ignore it and move on. I say, I used to say tomorrow's fish and chip papers. Now I say press delete, you know. It's gone. Done? And do come and see us. We have some great shows on. <laughs>